Lifeline Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is former Penn State legend, USFL extraordinaire quarterback, 1978 Heisman Trophy runner-up, Chuck Fusina. Chuck, welcome to Life Unedited. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Hey, Chuck. I really appreciate it. It's going to be a fun interview. We're going to cover, of course, your career here, a little bit of Penn State, what you did there, and then we're going to talk the U.S. United States Football League. This is the 30th year anniversary of the start of that startup league that lasted three years but what a three years it was, it definitely changed the face of professional football forever. And you were a big part of that, weren't you? Well, I was fortunate. I, I was lucky enough to be sign up with um, the team that turned out to be, the, I, which I believe, and I think a lot of people do, the, the best team in the league for those three years. So we were in the center of a, much of the action. Yeah, Philadelphia Stars, they, um, they seemed to be an organization back then that did it right. They didn't go out and sign, uh, you know, high, high-profile type free agents like the uh, New Jersey Generals did, picking up Doug Flutie and, and Herschel Walker and, and so forth, and other teams that brought in the Mike Rosiers uh, and players like that. You guys stayed within yourselves. You had a solid team. You were quarterback, Jim Mora as the coach. It appears he designed, and correct me if I'm wrong, it appeared to me that he designed the uh, the offense around your strengths, and then also more or less featuring uh, Calvin Bryant, the running back, who was the uh, United States Most Valuable Player in 1984. Am I kind of right on that? that he just kind of designed it for you guys? Well, I, I, yeah, yes and no. I think uh, Coach Moore did a, a good job on the overall team, but he really had nothing to do with the offense, Okay. Uh, in all honesty. Uh, the first person who had a lot to do with was a guy named Joe Pendry. And Joe was a um, was the offensive coordinator our first year in '83, and Joe Joe the next year went on to Pittsburgh to be the Maulers head coach. Uh, he did such a, I thought such a nice job in '83 uh, with us, and that's why he got the position. And uh, then uh, Carl Smith and Jim Merkenbeck were the two people that really you know put the offense together. And and thank you for the compliments, but in all honesty, John, it it, it was built, our offense was built around Kelvin. Uh, You know something, Chuck, I'm going to have to, and I know you're being modest, and I know you're being honest, too, within yourself, but I grew up watching it. It was a tremendous league, and at the time, it helped. The Philadelphia Eagles were not a good team, so the Stars came in and, in my mind, filled that void of good football. But, Chuck, I watched you play. It's not like you had stud receivers. You had good receivers. You know, Scott Fiske was one of them, but to me, it appeared that you almost kind of a slight West Coast offense back in that time period that you guys were running. You found your receivers. Calvin Bryant, of course, was the main point. But without right. a good quarterback to mix it up, you just he just becomes keyed on, and that's the end of that. And, you know, you contain him, you contain the team. And when he was contained at times, you guys still flourished. Uh, you were the MVP of the 1984 well, USFL Championship game in Tampa, Florida. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I'll tell you, any quarterback will say the same thing I did. I mean, it's so important. It's it's just so incredibly important to have a running game, a threat like that, which brings everyone close to the line of scrimmage. And, and right, we didn't have super speed receivers on the outside, but we had really good, dependable guys that can get open. But what helped us so much was that when everyone came up, and Kelvin was such a threat. He really was. He uh, Unfortunately, he got hurt when, when the league uh, – 
uh, went down and he went to DC and he was and he got hurt. And I, I know he would have been a, a really, really good or great NFL uh, running back. You hit it right uh, on the mark. I thought the same thing. I thought him coming out after the '85 USFL season was over and the league scrapped itself in '86. Him going to Washington, I thought for sure yep. he had another two or three, or if not four, real good stud seasons in him. And that just shows with with any position, but mostly running backs, uh, just a small injury or any injury, and it just cuts your your time so short and your you know what you, your potential and your abilities down, and that's what happens. I mean, it, it's not only Kelvin; it happens to so many guys, and I think that's why you see them trying to when you see these contract holdouts or anything like that. They know their time could be so short. Well, the and it doesn't help that the NFL itself knows that they actually have the leverage too. They know your shelf life. As a as a power running back is you know four to six years tops, sure. and you know they hold the leverage, and it's unfortunate because I think of players like that, the Earl Campbells, the uh, Larry Zonkas, uh, yep. uh, the Bus, going back you know not that far back. It's a shame that it has to be that way, but it seems to me that the league and the players' association are at least starting to come around and understand that the players aren't just a, a product. You know? well, I, think, I think you're right, John. I think uh, so much studies have been done, especially about the concussions, and because and, uh, we get these from the NFL, get letters and information constantly now, I think because the NFL is definitely worried about, and of course there's a lawsuit going on, and, and the finding out more and more in later life what happens. And um, it's really sad what's happened to some of the players that even I was with, and just... Um, just what's going on, but I, I think and hope they're going to make it a safer game. Well, you know, point. it's well, well, Chuck, how about yourself? Did you, did you can you recall any concussions? I, I remember getting, you know, really uh, what I would think seeing stars and doing that, but you know what? When, when I played, you didn't really know, you just thought you saw stars. That's it, uh, they didn't really understand that you really had taken a, a, a blow or an injury to the brain. No, not at all. Not, no. never, that was never discussed. I mean, they looked for it. They went, you went to the sidelines, um, and I'm not saying there were bad doctors or anything like that, uh, but of course. But I don't think that, you know, they had the, the, the expertise or the knowledge that you know, this was all taking place. And over time, they found out, you know, when you're 50, 60 years old now, some of, some of the players, that they're really having some problems. And, um, and thankfully, there are you know, more and more medical evidence is uh, coming through. Well, how about size difference right now? I mean, just looking back... When you played college football, going into the you know the late 70s, then you were drafted in the fifth round uh, by Tampa, Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers. Your average lineman back then was what, 260 pounds, 265? It's such a complete different game now. I'm, I'm like I said, people always ask me, don't you wish you played now and the money and everything like that? Well, <laughs> if I came out the same way and, uh, <laughs> and, and my size and, and everything like that, I, I, I wouldn't even have the opportunity now to think that I had because it's, it's hard. I mean, right now these guys are so athletic, up and down the lines. Uh, you know, when a defensive lineman is running as fast as a, as, as a running back, it's, it's, it's a really scary collision that happen out there. Oh, it is. If you look at it now, I just read something, uh, God, I think it was in USA Today earlier this week. There were two or three 300-pound men in the NFL in the, I think, 1982 or 83 season. Now I believe there's well over 100 in the yep. NFL. Now that's not counting the average linebacker back then was 215 to 225. Now your average linebacker is 250-plus. Exactly. It's just, 
it's amazing. I mean, you you watch the game and uh, even even the college game. You know, heck, I went and saw my high school team play, and I couldn't believe the size of them. I mean, it's just it, it's the game has definitely changed. Uh, definitely a more aggressive, hard hitting, faster, um, but. It takes a toll on the body, and we're seeing it more and more. Definitely seeing it more and more. I want to step back a little bit. Now, you're starting quarterback at Penn State. Uh, we're going to do the 1978 season in particular, and then we'll kind of roll in a little bit later to the 79 Sugar Bowl against Alabama uh, okay. down in New Orleans. Uh, 78 season, uh, you ended up run, uh, runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. Do you remember who beat you out? Uh, yes, I definitely do. Um, a, a great running back named Billy Sims. That is correct. And unfortunately, an injury ended up cutting his career, uh, if not short, at least derailing it for a little bit. Oh, definitely. He was as good as anyone. He, yeah, he, he was. was. He, he had was that true. great cutback style. And he he was well-deserving, and they had a great team that year. But he could just flat out not only run, but he was powerful, too. He was a great player. Now, that 78 season... Uh, did you know throughout the season that you were being followed as a, as a potential Heisman Trophy uh, winner? And, it, and if so, what was it like uh, to be followed around like that? Because going back in the day, and even up until uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Joe Paterno no longer coached, he kept it where it was more of a team concept instead of single out one player. So how was it that you were looked upon at that time? Well, I think... Um, and oh, actually, probably our offense. We had a, probably a better offense my junior year, which helped me, I guess, individually wise because of that. Going into my senior year, we had uh, we had some really good receivers my senior year, but my junior year we had two guys, uh, Mickey Schuler and, and Jimmy Cephalo, and um, we threw the ball more and, and all and down the field more because of that, because of because of the um, because of their speed and at their positions. Both of them played ten years in the NFL. So you knew they were really good players. When our senior year came in, we just had a dominating defense. We really did. Uh, our defense was the strength of our team. And our offense, uh, we were consistent, but nothing flashy. But it helps when you're winning, and you get, you get a little more attention. And I always tell people, people ask me how I was, you know, how so I up. We really had a good uh, sports information director. Uh, and he, and I think uh, I, I got on the cover of uh, Sports Illustrated, and you sort of just people just started to watch us, and all of a sudden we're ranked number one in the country when Penn State was never ranked number one before. And uh, you sort of get more and more national attention, and uh, we got into the Sugar Bowl undefeated and played a great team. But that season was exciting. People, um, you know, people were you know a lot more attention in the media to us. They were coming up to State College, whereas always were thought of as, a, at that time, a good Eastern school. And I, I think it was a little prejudice against the school because, we, like I said, we were never number one. We weren't at Oklahoma or in Alabama in terms of national power. And, um, but it was a lot of fun, and it, I think it was great for the school. Did you feel any little bit of a uh, different kind of pressure because of the, the attention that you were getting? I mean, it's got to be difficult. You're a 20, 21-year-old kid. You've got a national program on your shoulders. Everybody's watching, and now there's this added element of you know potential Heisman Trophy winning situation here. How does it? How does a kid handle that? Because I think now we expect too much from the kids that are playing football coming out. And um, one of the examples we're going to, have to take a break real quick on this one, but I want to talk about Marcus Dupree 
when I come back. I just saw a documentary on him, and I think he's a prime example of too much pressure too soon. You're listening to Life Unedited. My guest today is former Penn State great Chuck Fusina. We'll be back in a few moments. Matt from Rivers Monroe. Check out Soundstage on WCHE 1520 Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with new host Mike, my good friend from Rivers Monroe, as he talks with upcoming local artists and musicians. Again, that's Soundstage every Thursday at 4 p.m. with Mike Monroe on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. But is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? So is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have their own social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Good question. Man, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's a great question. First time I've heard it on about 15 interviews. I'm very thankful to ask that. If you're looking for the latest in fashion, beauty, health, lifestyle, and entertainment with unique and interesting guests and the questions that you're always wondering that no one asks, then tune into The Brin Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12, and you can stay updated with the show at facebook.com forward slash The Brin Project. That's The Brin Project on Wednesdays at 12.15 and Saturdays at 12. Hi, I'm Willie Garson, and you're listening to WCHEAM 1520, the talk of Chester County. Good morning. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is former Penn State great quarterback and Philadelphia Stars United States Football League, and I'll say it again, great quarterback, Chuck Fusina. Chuck, before we took the break, we were talking about uh, pressure. Uh, some of it you might have felt during the 1978 season with Penn State. You were uh, being touted as a Heisman Trophy possible winner. And I kind of took a break, and, and we were talking about pressure again and I was referencing uh, Marcus Dupree, who I saw recently on an ESPN documentary. Have you had a chance to view that at all? I have not seen that, John. He, um, they basically go through his experiences at Oklahoma State with Barry Switzer, and what a nightmare that was for the guy. But it just seemed like all of this pressure on a 21, he was even younger than that, he was 17, 18, 19, all of this pressure, uh, he ends up leaving Oklahoma and goes in USFL, ends up with the New Orleans Breakers, and the expectations are just outrageous. Uh, what's your take on that? You kind of came through it. You lived it. What do you think about it today? Because I think it's even worse today. Well, I, I definitely agree with you. And, again, it's another reason I feel so fortunate to play when I did. Um, believe it or not, I, I think I was kind of fortunate because there was no ESPN. <laughs> there, was, um, there wasn't this mass media constantly criticizing or complimenting every play you make on a highlight film. It was, um, and being at Penn State and in State College, you're sort of in your own realm up there. And um, I really didn't feel it as much. The pressure I felt was to play as well as I could in each game because I was playing on a, on a great team. Uh, you wanted to do well for your school and for the other players and, and, and the alumni and everything like that that goes into it. But it wasn't the pressure of a 
anyone for a Heisman. And a short story for you, John. When I found out that I came in second in the Heisman, my, my roommate and I were eating breakfast. And, uh, we were at a, uh, a local diner, not for breakfast, after we had a fun night the night before. And that's how they gave me a phone call, and I, that's how I found out. So it wasn't, you know, this thing where they take you to New York and you're, and you're you know, you're, this is, it's such a big deal because it's a TV deal. And I honestly am glad it was that way. You know, you, 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 it's funny you mention that because um, you won the Maxwell Club Award also in 1978 uh, for most outstanding uh, collegiate football player. I help with the private security every year for the Maxwells. So what you say is true. I've seen it. They're flying in the top two or three Maxwell you know, club possibilities mm-hmm. for winners, and these kids are treated like rock stars. Right. I mean, we are, you know, when we're pulling security for these guys, it is it is major security because people are trying to get to them uh, at some level or another. And I find it amazing to watch grown men literally falling all over themselves to get an autograph. It's, yeah, it's, it, it blows me away when I see it. It's, you know, football has just become so popular, and, and which is great. I, it I, is. It, to me, it's the greatest team sport. I, I I love the sport. It was so much fun playing. I feel honored to be a part of Penn State and what I did professionally, and I was always be thankful for that experience. But sometimes it does go over a little uh, over the top. And um, but I mean, those fans are, you know, well, I guess what keeps it alive and makes it such a great game. But you're right. It's um, it's kind of nice the way I had it and the way I went through things. And I was glad, like I still say that I was glad I played when I played. Now, you're taken in the fifth round uh, of the uh, 79 draft by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We, did, did you feel that was a little low for you, considering you were coming off a Heisman run? No, not really. Um, the type of player that I was, I, I, I really thought I could do well in a, in a certain system. Um, and there's so many different systems out there. And it was just starting to get to go to the quarterbacks with the stronger, bigger, bigger arms. Not like today where these guys are 250, 260, but yeah. played behind a guy named Doug Williams, who was yes. just a terrific player uh, and actually went into the USFL, too, with me after his, after his Tampa. Correct. After he, uh, uh, I think he signed with... I forget who it was. Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, it was uh, Oklahoma Outlaws. Oklahoma, yes. And... Um, but he was, you know, he, he taught me a lot in terms of uh, toughness, in terms of he, he would never come out of a game, which I got kind of mad at him. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but he really, he really was a good player, and I, I really liked the organization down there. It wasn't an offense like this when I played with the Stars, where you know you get the ball around, you get it away quickly, it's fast. It was more of a downfield type uh, offense where you're you're throwing downfield to a lot of speed receivers. But it was a great experience. I um, played, they were very good teams when I was down there, believe it or not, when I was in Tampa. We almost went to the Super Bowl the one year. We uh, we lost to the Rams, and they went on to play, uh, lose to the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Yeah, you beat my had, Philadelphia Eagles, I remember, distinctly yeah, that Eagles. afternoon. Yes, it was exactly. uh, New Year's Eve day. I re- uh, yes, New Year's Eve day. I remember this, like it was yesterday. It broke my heart. Yeah, and the Eagles were like a, a terrific team. And uh, But uh, when I was in Tampa, they, again, had a, just a terrific defense. They were in New York. I think I played with as good as players I ever played in Leroy Selman. But th- the problem was with Leroy, he was in Tampa. And uh, people didn't get to see him play if he was in New York or anything, but he was just so good. He just, he just led that team, and it was just a really nice experience. Now, you, you, you stay with Tampa for a couple years, and... Now there starts, I guess, the rumblings. You guys are hearing the stories. The NFL players are. There's a new league coming. Right. Uh, USFL. They're going to play in the spring and the summer, which back then was 
considered almost blasphemous to some point because who plays football in the spring and summer? And right. it, I would assume it's given everyone who is, we'll say, on the bubble in the NFL, it's going to give them a chance to play and, uh, and get exposure if this league takes off. Now, were you approached by a couple teams? Did you have to kind of throw your hat out there? And I well, guess the second part would be, what, what were the players thinking about this upstart league coming? Well, it's, um, well, my story is my fourth year with Tampa, and I was traded to San Francisco. And I went out to San Francisco for, it was a third, um, they had, some, they had, a, they had a, a couple quarterbacks go down, so I got traded out there, and it was for the last preseason game, and I was there for three days, and I started the game against Seattle. And it was kind of fun, I didn't really know what I was doing, because I, I think I knew days, but it was, um, uh, it was it, like I said, I did okay, nothing nothing great, nothing bad, and um, they, they also, in that game about... I can't remember exactly, but they had a number of their players go down that game with injuries. Okay. So they decided after that to keep only two quarterbacks. It was Joe Montana, and I believe the other guy's name is Guy Benjamin. And um, so they were planning what they told me to keep three, but because of the injuries on their they quit on their roster, they they couldn't keep three uh, couldn't keep three, so they let me go, and told me that you'll probably be getting picked up soon back onto the, the roster. And that's when I got a call from uh, Carl Peterson. And told me about the new league and and what it represented and everything like that. And it really interests me. And really, because at that time I wasn't concerned about playing in the NFL and being in the NFL. I, I wanted to play. And um, I figured I was still young. I, I I wanted an opportunity to go out in the field again because I you know, every, everyone's a competitor and you want to be out there. And they didn't promise me the position, but they said you'd have a really you'd have an opportunity to be the starter. And that's that's all I needed to hear. And I and I visited. And I met Miles Tannenbaum and Carl, and you could talk about coaching, you could talk about players, but they were the rock. They built the foundation. They were solid completely through as, as long as the USL lasted. They were, we had the best ownership in the league. That is correct. And that's so important, as I've learned more and more. Um, like I say, coaches, players go, but if the ownership is there and it's solid, that's, 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 that's what teams are built on. Well, they stayed the course. Exactly. of the plan. When the league came together, the idea was not to go after stud-free agents. They were supposed to stay within a certain amount, we we'll almost call it a salary cap, but without really being self-imposed. And I believe it was $6 million for each team, and I think there were 14 teams the first season, and that was the idea. But as it, you know, as it evolved, um, it became different. Uh, the New Jersey Generals, uh, teams out in L.A., they, they wanted to go out and get stud players. One of them being, you probably remember, Steve Young's contract that uh, uh, I think was the Los Angeles, I'm going to say Express at the time. I, it was a huge, it was like $10 million over 20 years or something totally mind-boggling. Yeah. And what... You know, you guys come into this league. Now, your first season with the Stars, you go 15-3. and three. Uh, I don't think anyone expected that. I, I remember, I think they expected the Philadelphia Stars to be competitive. But you go 15-3. and three. Calvin Bryant is the feature back. You have a solid season. You've got, you know, your defense is probably the backbone of the team. Right. You get into the playoffs. The first playoff game, and I was at that one, the Chicago Blitz. And I love retelling this story. 
You guys are down 38-17. It is a hot, and you'll, I pretty sure remember, a hot, ungodly hot day in early July of 1983. It's a Saturday. And you guys are down 38-17 with about eight minutes left to play. And that's when the rally begins. Do you remember the rally? Do you, do you remember coming back, forcing that oh, overtime, and then, and then the game-winning field goal? I think it was Steve Trout kicks the field goal, 41-38 win. I have a lot of good memories of football, but I think that second half um, maybe is my favorite memory. Um, you know, a lot of teams could have got down, not only themselves, but on their quarterback. When, uh, you know, I put them in some bad situations. I remember I had a fumble and an interception. You guys had seven turnovers that day. Right. We were just, we were just, um, nothing was going right for us. But on that second half, it just felt like there was never a doubt that we could do it. And uh, that meant so much to me in terms of wanting to get back on the field every time it was our turn after the defense would keep giving us the ball back. And uh, I think everyone made big plays. It was such a team effort uh, to come back, and that was George Allen's team. And you know he, had a, he was a great coach and, had a, and coached a really good defense. And uh, it was surprising. Uh, like I said, when we came back and finally in overtime and Kelvin scored the winning touchdown, I think that's when I think it was a great game for TV. I thought as a team we arrived. I mean, in terms of knowing that you know we could we could go on, even though we didn't win the the championship game this year, which was a good game. That was an excellent game against the Michigan Panthers. Right, it was very close, and it could have went either way. But I wanted but to ask was, you. I'm going to cut, but I have to ask you because we're still kind of in the blitz thing too here, the blitz game. Sure. The guys came out sluggish in the championship game uh, the following week. They didn't have that, that extra week off the NFL does. Right. You're down 17-3 at half, and then the rally begins again. You just couldn't quite pull it off two games in a row. Do you think you guys were spent a little bit that first half? You know what? If we were, it's shame on us, as I should say. Um, we, you know, it's a championship game. You shouldn't have been. But um, I, I think it's, it was just one of those deals where we just – we're close, but uh, there was a one or two plays we, we should have had. And it, I'm seeing the films of it, I remember that it was just so close to breaking a couple things, and it just didn't happen. And you've got to give credit to the other team when that happens. Well, Bobby Hebert had a good game, and Anthony Carter, his receiver, had an excellent game. I mean, that's the backbreaker. You guys pull within, and then there's that pass out to Carter. And right. I forget, I think it's Anthony Garcia, the, the cornerback that's, that's tagging him. And I think Garcia slips. Yes, and yeah. Carter goes. I believe I'll say fifty-five plus yards for the touchdown, right. and that's just the way it rolled. It just you weren't he, Anthony Garcia wasn't beat by a great pass, or he wasn't outran by you know Anthony Carter speeding by him. He just slipped. Yeah, and he went down, and uh, we just we just couldn't get you know. We I think we scored one more time, and then that was it. The clock ran out, and that, that was, was and that was and that was it for us. But like I said, it was a great experience the first year. I, I think. Uh, we knew where we needed us, a little more help in some different areas. Uh, Carl, of course, um, who had a great mind for football and personnel, uh, knew who to get and what to do. And, uh, and as a players, I think we rallied around that, and we were ready, really ready for a great year the following season. Well, I was going to ask you guys going to the second season of the USFL, 1984. You're on a mission. It's obvious. Uh, you guys go 16-2. and two. But the league is changing, dramatically changing. It's expanded. Uh, there's inner fighting going on. Donald Trump has come in and now is majority owner of the New Jersey Generals. He has gone out and he is looking to sign players like Doug Flutie will be coming out next year. Herschel Walker. There's more NFL players now defecting 
to the USFL. So there's bidding wars going on, and the drafting's becoming different because the USFL drafts earlier yes. than the NFL. So now the NFL's scrambling, and they're getting worried because, hey, this upstart league is doing something. And, you know, the face it, the old guard's getting a little nervous, and we're going to take a break on that note. We're going to come back and talk about the 1984 season. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is former Penn State great quarterback, United States football Philadelphia, Philadelphia Stars quarterback, Chuck Fusina. We'll be back in a few moments. Wish there was a local hardware store that provided friendly, personal service, helping you find exactly what you need. Get you in and out of the store quickly with prices that meet or beat the big box stores. Well, look no further than Ace Hardware of Westchester. It'll soon be time to take the student and your family back to school. And did you know Ace Hardware is an official U-Haul truck rental location? They have vans, trucks, and tow dollies in a variety of sizes. And don't forget the August Hot Buys professional-grade decorative duct tape, which is very popular with the teenage girls in a variety of patterns. 50% off at only $3 a roll. 18-gallon clear tote storage bins, two for $12, or 72-quart size, two for $14. And a 5-in-1 inflatable chair bed with air pump, special purchase price, $39.99. That's a 50% savings. Ace Hardware of Westchester is located on Strasburg Road, just past the Daily Local News, and they're open seven days a week for your convenience. Have a question? Call them, 610-344-4811. Ace and Ace Hardware of Westchester is the helpful place. The Habitat for Humanity Restore has opened their second location at 345 Scarlet Road in Kennett Square in the former Acme building in the new Garden Shopping Center on the old Baltimore Pike. They're accepting donations of gently used cabinetry, furniture, appliances, and clothing for resale to the community. So help the new Habitat fill their stores so they can continue to build affordable housing in Chester County. Habitat will accept donations Tuesday through Saturday from 9 to 3. Hi, I'm Ann Murphy, Certified Holistic Health Coach. Have you ever wished you had a personal owner's manual? Well, check out my show, New Approach Wellness. We'll talk about how food changes everything, thoughts, feelings, actions, and outcomes. We'll learn about the food mood connection, cravings, and how to connect your mind with your body. So join me here at WCHG on Wednesdays at 4 and learn how to tune into your personal owner's manual. I'm feeling sexy and free. Hey, I'm Dee Snyder. I'm J.J. French. And we're from Twisted Sister. And you're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today my guest is... Former Penn State, uh, I keep saying it, but I'm going to say it again, great quarterback Chuck Fusina, who's also the stud quarterback for the Philadelphia Stars of the old United States Football League. Chuck, before we took the break, we were talking the end of the first season, 1983 of the USFL. The Stars go to the championship. Unfortunately, they lose to the uh, uh, Michigan Panthers, 24-22. Great competitive game. The next season, 1984, you guys come in. You ripped through the league, 16-2 and two regular season. Kelvin Bryant named MVP. You go up against the New Jersey Generals in the first round. Now, at this point, you're playing at Franklin Field because you're having problems. Uh, ownership's having problems with the vet. Leonard Toes with the Eagles isn't being helpful, so you guys end up there. Pretty much handle the Generals that hot, muggy afternoon. Then you go again to the, to the USL Championship, this time in Tampa Bay. 
against the Arizona Wranglers, and let's call it straight. It wasn't even a game. You guys basically controlled them from beginning to end. Twenty-three to three is the final. Right, John. That that season was just. Um, I know we had we had some close games, but we really played well that year, both offensively and defensively. Um, we just seemed to. Uh, it's just one of those years when things went right, and our personnel and players and everything that went into it just seemed to click. It was. Um, it was fun. It was. It, it just seemed like we got either got leads early or defense gave us the ball continuously through the season. Um, our receivers really stepped up too. We started to throw the ball more, which was fun for me. Yep. And, yep. and uh, the, the nice part was our running backs not only would run; they were really good receivers. Not only Kelvin with, with uh, Duck Rowley and, um, and, and and Alan Harvin. And these these three guys were really really terrific out of the backfield. They were really good blockers too. Little little bit about Kelvin. He was such an unselfish player, and he was just as good as a blocker and receiver as he was a running back, which I thought that's why he deserved so much to be the MVP. He just did so much for us, and he didn't care if he you know, had 150 yards or had 70 or 50, whatever it took. He was always willing to do what it takes. He loved to win, and uh, he was such a team player. And it was sort of like that with everyone on our team, though. I guess when you win, it's easy to say that, but it seemed to be that way. I mean, uh, everyone knew their part. Everyone... Uh, took pride in how they uh, handled uh, their position. I think that had to do with USFL. It's just the whole uh, the mental part of it, being in that league. Everyone was hoping for a chance and an opportunity, and they really relished it. Well, here's some numbers for you. You talked about increasing the passing game from 83 to 84. 1983, you have uh, 2,718 passing yards. The next season, it jumps 1,100 yards to 38-37 in the 84 season and keep in mind you also won the USFL MVP of the championship game now we go to the 85 season and you go for almost 3500 yards so pretty much in the same area that you did in the 84 season but the 85 season is pretty much you want to call it a mess or just uh, you guys are basically driving around in U-Haul trucks they've moved you now from Philly to Baltimore you're playing at Old Bird Stadium which most high school football stadiums look better than that place. And, was, you know, the league's falling apart. You guys end up going 10-7-1, and one, but you win the whole damn thing again at the Meadowlands, 28-27 against the Oakland Invaders, and Bobby Hebert's there again. But, you know, kind of walk us through that 85 season. It seemed almost, it, looking back on it, Chuck, it has to be almost surreal. It, it, it is. I and mean, when I talked to... Uh, friends and former teammates about it, 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 you just say, man, how did we do that? When you think about it, we were initially in the vet practicing and then going, of course, driving down to Baltimore on the weekends to play our games yeah. because, I, because I think they felt that we all lived there. They didn't want to even make things stranger than they were as having everyone pick up and have to move to Baltimore. So we stayed living in Philly, practicing there and playing our games in Baltimore, so we never had a home game. In honesty, and Baltimore fans actually, for for being in that situation, were great. In all honest, they they came out. Uh, we had we had pretty good crowds, um, but it was hard for them too. I mean, how you know how do you wrap your arms around this team? Not sure if it's going to be there the next year or why they're not even living in your town. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was really it was really fun. And then we lost our practice facility to vet for some. You know, I think the NFL took us out of there. They did. Leonard Toes. They pushed. They put a lot of pressure. Uh, exactly. against the USFL, and yet you guys lost your practice facility. And then we went over, and then our, we had a new practice facility over at the University of Pennsylvania, and um, 
and then we um, again we just kept doing the same thing, and we started off the season you know, really slow. And at the end, we knew we, I think we had to win five out of six to get into the playoffs. And uh, we sat around and said, we could do it. I mean, let's, let's try. No one in the league, we didn't think anyone wanted us to do it because, of course, they wanted the teams with the high-profile guys to be in, their, in, their, in their, their playoffs and in the championships. But we said, hey, we're as good as anyone. Uh, and maybe a little bit of confidence. We think, thought we were better than anyone. If we, if we play football the way we did prior to that, and we just started to pick it up, and it was, that again was just a, just a, a great testament to our ownership, uh, to those, those guys in that locker room that uh, never gave up and still enjoyed ourselves. It was, it was always fun. It was a team that, even when we were losing, it was a very close-neck group. I'm a big sports memorabilia collector, and I've got a very good uh, amount of USFL memorabilia. And one of them I have is the front page, uh, or the back front page, I should say, of the old of the Philadelphia Daily News the day after you guys won the championship. And the caption starts with Hall of Fame writer Ray Didinger, and it states they did it for themselves, meaning what you just said: the you, the players, the ownership, uh, the coaches. You guys really did it for yourselves. They're really, I mean, you know, you were kind of out there on your own ship. Yeah, and especially with everything, the rumbling going on about the, the lawsuit and would this be our last year, and we just, you know, we didn't know. Um, and when we won that, uh, uh, the last championship game, I think walking off the field, it was a little surreal because we were very happy that we won, of course, like that, but we were always in the back of our minds wondering, is this it? Is, is it over? Did you guys so know? It was, it was a kind of weird, weird, weird feeling that everyone had. Did you guys know what was going on? The inner fighting amongst the owners, the sides that were being taken. One side wants to stay the course that was set uh, when the uh, league was founded, and then the other side is Donald Trump, who thinks he can compete against the NFL going into a fall season. Are you aware of that? And what are the players thinking? We're aware that things are going on, but not to the extent that you know specifics. I think they tried to hide as much from us, our ownership, just to, hey, you, let's concentrate on football. Let's try to do that, because there's nothing we can do about the other part of it. We're not in those meetings. Uh, you know, we can't strike. We can't do anything like that. It's going to be, it's, it is what it's going to be. It is what it is, I should say. Uh, and then, unfortunately, I found out uh, the news, and when we lost the case and everything, then we knew that was, that was it. Well, the case was interesting, and you and I talked about that a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to give the listeners a little bit, if they don't know the history of the USFL, how it ended. Uh, Donald Trump came in as an owner, uh, took over as the owner of New Jersey Generals. He, his personality, the way he is, decided he wants to compete head-to-head against the NFL, and he's going to force the issue, and he wants to go into the fall league. Uh, to begin with, what they decide to do is sue the NFL for antitrust reasons. Quite interesting, actually, if you think about it, because right. you really have to really have to ask yourself: Are there antitrust laws being broken here? How do you prove it? And you know, is it really going to do any good? So, what it comes down to is the lawsuit takes place. It takes place up in New York. They bring a jury in. Uh, a lot of people probably didn't. Probably a lot of the jury didn't truly grasp what was going on. But the USFL actually wins the lawsuit, which is amazing. But they're only awarded $1. Yeah. $1, that's it, which is tripled because of how the law works on an antitrust lawsuit. And that's it. They can't compete. The NFL has to pay their lawyers' fees, but 
that's the end of the league. And hence becomes a book that I own, and I'm going to try to find one for you and send it to you, called The One Dollar League, which goes into the entire history of the United States Football League from beginning to its very bizarre end. And then, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, to this day, I, I really don't understand the one dollar <laughs> ruling on that. I do know that I, I remember, I think I told you the story when we talked earlier that I was in graduate school. I, did, I, I went to uh, LaSalle yeah. for uh, an MBA, and I was in uh, one of my finance classes, and the, the, the teacher knew uh, because I was always, I was, I wasn't real bright. I was trying to get constant help from him <laughs> in certain things. So I, I, he, he gave me a lot of help to, to get through his course. But he knew that uh, what I was doing in my other life. And I remember him coming up to me when it was during class and it just came out. For some reason, he, he heard. And he came up to me and he said, hey, you could leave. You, you, guys won the, you guys won the case. And I was I was really excited. I said, man, this is great. There's, you know, The league's going to survive. And I, I was so many people that had great, you know, that really... I wanted to have this. a lot of jobs were created because of this. Yes, and, uh, a lot of good people uh, were working. Incomes went up. Incomes exactly. went up just it because helped, of it competition. Not US, yeah. Right, not only the USFL, it had the NFL players considerably, and, and in the long run, I think it made the NFL a better league. Um, but, and I went outside and I remember and I said and I put on the radio and I remember putting uh, driving back uh, home and I remember hearing, hey, you do the USFL one, but they won one dollar, and I said to myself, <laughs> what? What does that mean? And I remember putting the TV on, and and the jurors came out, and they were interviewing them. And it just seemed like they had no clue. No, they didn't. There, there's a woman. Did or, and I'm not blaming them and all like that. I, they did, I'm sure, what they thought was right. But they, it just seemed like they didn't know why or what reasons were that they came up with this. And I, that was a little disheartening. And I, and I remember I was going to my senior high school, and um, we were in the weight room working out, getting ready for football season. And I remember coming home. This is before you had CNN and all this other stuff. So you had to tune into your local news. And that, they give you maybe a two-minute blip on it. But I remember a woman standing there. And, you know, a common woman. Nothing, you know, probably a housewife, maybe work. I mean, nothing, you know, no negative here. Just yep. a person. Right. And what they said they found was that, yes, the NFL had violated the antitrust laws. But they didn't think there was any real damage done. And I remember sitting there, I mean, you know, you're a high school kid, you're not, the, you know, you don't know everything, I, you, you know, it's finance, but I remember thinking, how can you have it both ways? Yeah. If you've damaged someone, especially when it comes to business, there has to be a monetary set to that. Yeah. And there wasn't. And, and from that point, it was a downer. And you guys got your outright release, releases from all the teams within, what, a couple weeks? Yes, yeah, it was it was that way, and a lot of the guys. I know we had, a, I think, near about twenty guys went into got picked up by the NFL. So it was a, um, it was it was quick. It was right before, uh, you know, the the training camp, and uh, so there was a there was a lot of signings. Well, you ended up going to, I believe, the uh, Green Bay Packers first. I went up correct? to Green Bay. I got signed about the second game of the season, and um, I played there for a year. And uh, actually, uh, Scott and I, Scott Fiske, went up to Canada right after, too. We wanted to see, hey, maybe we'll go to a different league. What the heck? CFL. And, uh, so we went up to Montreal for a weekend. Scott ended up staying. He goes, I think I like this. I said, I'm not, <laughs> that's not for me. And uh, I came back to Philly. And I, that's why I was, and I also was in uh, graduate school there. So when I got, got a call from Greenby, I said, you know, I'm not going to leave here unless I'm with you guys for a year at least. And uh, they were real good. And, and uh, I backed up uh, a guy named Randy Wright for the year. 
And my the year afterwards, um, I was released by them in preseason. And after that, I I got calls and and people asked me to, and I, that was it. I, I knew I was ready, and I I was thankful for how long I did get to play. You know, not too many people get to even play seven years. Seven you had years. a career. I, I was very you excited can look back on it. There you exactly. go. We're, Chuck, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off. I had to roll in that break real quick. We're talking to Chuck Fusina, former Penn State quarterback, former United States Football League quarterback for the Philadelphia Stars. Be back in a few moments. What is the first thing that pops into your mind when you think of Gettysburg? Is it our rich Civil War history, battlefields, and museums? Or is it the beautiful countryside filled with farm markets and family camping? How about our many shops, boutiques, and restaurants? With everything Gettysburg has to offer, the first thing you think of might be what a great, affordable destination we are. Come visit us and find out for yourself. Log on to Gettysburg.travel and discover your Gettysburg. The Gettysburg National Military Park Museum and Visitor Center offers unlimited inspiration for your Gettysburg experience. The AAA Gem Attraction engages visitors of all ages with the Cyclorama, the film A New Birth of Freedom, and the Museum of the American Civil War. Three attractions, one ticket. Then, plan your battlefield tour. Proceeds benefit battlefield preservation. Plan for unlimited inspiration. Visit the Gettysburg National Military Park Museum and Visitor Center. Advanced tickets and more information available at GettysburgFoundation.org. Results are in, and you can experience the thrill of experiencing Kyle's Auto Tag and Insurance, award-winning service for all your auto tag needs or the agony of going anywhere else. Kyle's has been voted the gold medal winner as the top auto tag and notary service in Chester County in the Daily Local Newsreader's Choice Award poll. With Kyle's 30 years of experience and his connection with the Pennsylvania Department of Motor Vehicles, he can do it all. Cars, trucks, small trailers, or even a fleet of corporate trucks. Kyle or his manager, John, will make it a smooth transaction. Need something notarized? Kyle can do that too. Kyle has two locations to serve you. The original location in the Gay Street Plaza in Westchester and their newest location in Thorndale at 57 North Bailey Road near Rafiti's Restaurant and Brenda's Back Shop behind Kmart. And Kyle's is always less than the big wig. If you let your auto registration expire, Kyle can make you legal on the spot. Kyle's Auto Tag and Insurance, because you're entitled to great service. Hey, this is Olympic softball gold medalist Jenny Finch, and you are listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Good morning. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest has been... Chuck Fusina, former Penn State quarterback, all United States Football League quarterback for the Philadelphia Stars. Chuck, so we uh, towards the end, this is the, the last segment of the interview here, and um, you know we basically left it. The USFL had folded. You and Scott Fisky thought, eh, maybe the Canadian Football League, but that wasn't your bag. So then you get out of football in 86, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Did you keep any memorabilia? You got your jersey or anything or a football or something? 
I do have some uh, jerseys, and we did get some like game balls and things like that. And I, I have the one for the Chicago game, but that was mine. So that's the one I, uh, I think I uh, hold most dearest. Uh, you got your but, championship rings and everything. Yep, I have my rings and um, have um, uh, mostly and m- most importantly, uh, just terrific memories and uh, great friendships that have lasted. Yeah, like I said, I got a lot of different uh, collectibles from the league. I've got helmets. Uh, I've got the tickets. From all three championships. As a matter of fact, I was talking to uh, Sean Landetta down at the Maxwell's back in March, and he was quite interested in finding a couple of those ticket subs for the championship games. Uh, uh, you know, it's just the, the league was just fun. I mean, it was, you know, as a 15 year old kid, it was good football to me. It, it, it was fun. It really was. I think it was. Um, uh, I know, and a lot of people have said about the NFL, the no fun league. I think that was the biggest thing about the USFL when it came. They tried to, you know, the dancing in the end zone, the um, the, the the rules of challenging plays, the uh, the way they did things before and after games of entertainment. I think the best of that is the the owner down in Tampa Bay, how he just made it the it, so much of an entertainment. Bassett. Uh, yeah, John Bassett. Bassett. Yeah. Got to meet him and just, just was a great ambassador for the game. He just loved it. He loved it. it was not, but the game was important always. The game was the main focus. Um, but all that went with it, it just was a good time, and he got fans excited. And I think that's the way the whole league was going. I, I think that's the way they wanted it to go, a little bit, to be a little bit different. You couldn't be the exact same, but they wanted to make sure it was good football, which is you know the overriding part of anything when it comes to sports. I was surprised when it ended that the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars weren't picked up by Baltimore, or, or, or I should say the NFL for Baltimore, as an expansion team, considering the uh, Colts had left in the middle of the night only a couple years earlier. Well, I'm sure the NFL, uh, the ownership, did not want anything to do with anything from the USFL after all that. I just I just have to think that. I, I think that they, you know, they would rather pick up something totally brand new, and I'm sure there were factions throughout ownership that didn't want that to take place. But um, you heard rumors. You know, you always you heard that stuff, but, of course, it never came to fruition. But um, it, they, were, they were hungry down there, and you could see how, they're, how well they're doing now. Oh, yeah, they, you know, they do great with the Ravens. Yeah. And the funny thing is, and I told you this a couple weeks ago, too, the USFL is on the verge of a comeback. Uh, they expect to play in the uh, 013 season next spring. Uh, more as a minor league team to the NFL. It appears they're going to try to stay within themselves this time, but who knows? Well, I haven't got any calls, John. <laughs> hey, maybe you could go back to coaching. Would you consider it, Chuck? No. No, no, not at all? That's it? You're very done? Happy with, I'm very happy with what I'm at and <laughs> what I'm doing. And uh, I, um, I always admire the coaches because of the time, the commitment that they place into that, it's, it's, um, it's a a profession that I uh, didn't um, want to go into, and um, but I do admire the, the coaches that do do it, and, and they they really love the game and they have to love what you do. Now I'm going to ask you. We got a few minutes here, and I'm going to ask you to run with me through a series of plays, four of them, and I'm going to give the overall. I'm going to I'm going to give I'm going to set the stage. Sugar Bowl 1979, Alabama up 14 to seven, early fourth quarter. You guys, Penn State has driven down their start on the eight-yard line, eight-yard line. Right. First and goal. First play, two yards, nothing dramatic, gets it down to the six. The second play, you throw a swing pass out to Scott Fiske. Looks like he's going to go in. You've hit him at the three. 
but he takes a vicious hit by Don McNeil and forces him out of the one. Do you remember that play? Well, that's the one I thought was a touchdown. Yep. I really did. I, I, as soon as I threw it, I said, hey, we tied this. And um, kid for them made a great play. Uh, he, he just hit Scott perfect. Uh, Scott was at an, at an angle where there's nothing Scott could have done. But uh, it seemed like it was a, just a, a really nice call. Uh, the ball was there. Scott made the nice catch. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember that. i got to admit to you, John, I've never watched a film of the game. You didn't want, oh, well, that, uh, that, that's even better, Scott, because I'm going to tell you, I mean, uh, Chuck, and I'm going to tell you why, because it's coming right from your memory then. Yes. Because I'm going to go now to third and goal at the one. Now, you hand it to Matt Suey literally right up the gut. Right. Suey stopped, but he's going to try now on a second try to dive over, which is a great picture on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He loses right. the ball, and there's a scramble for it. Now, there's a quote here, and I, I'm going to quote it, but i do not sure if you really said it or not. But supposedly you made the comment, uh, you were searching for the ball, you asked Alabama linebacker Marty Lyons how far it was from the goal line. And Lyons replies, about a foot, you better pass. <laughs> is that a true statement, or is that just something that just kind of came out as a... Uh, it might be a little folklore there. That's what I, I was thinking. That. I, I wasn't sure. It's why I wanted to kind of preference it that I'm not positive, but it's a good story. I, I actually... I know it's a little bit because I I made it a point never to talk to the opponent. <laughs> oh, he's, oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Okay, I, I, I would I would have at that time I was I was worried about our own players. I would I would have asked anyone else's opinion. It was it was uh, it's just seeing the play. Now, what are you guys thinking at that point? You're there well, at the foot yard line. I believe we called a timeout at that time. We went over to the sideline, and I remember just, just talking. You know what? We were like I said it. Our, my senior year that year, um, we really did. We, we mostly were a run first, pass second team. That's that was our that was our deal. And we had, I think, three guys on that team that went into the NFL on our line. With Keith Dorney, who was just a terrific uh, college player, he just went to the College Hall of Fame, and he was also a um, great pro for Detroit for a number of years. And uh, and we had uh, three other guys that were on the line too that. We're, you know, we're drafted and all this. So and we had two great backs and Matt Suey and Mike Gooman and Booker Moore, who was a first yes, round Booker pick. Moore, so yes, he was. So you could see that we had the talent. Um, and it really was, I thought, a good call. I mean, being the fact we've been in that situation so many times throughout the season and were able to pick it up. Um, they had a great defense. They really did. All those guys on the defensive line also got to play in the NFL for a number of years and linebackers. They were very good. It was good against good. And on that particular play, Alabama was better. Now it's fourth and goal, one foot yard line. Again, you've just said you just called the timeout. What's Coach right. Paterno saying? What are the coaches saying? I, I assume confidence is high, like you just said, because, hey, you've done it all year long. you got two power running backs, and Booker Moore can hold his own with anybody. Right. They were going back and forth with Coach Bob Phillips, was the um, quarterback coach and, and offensive coordinator. And him and Coach Paterno were going back and forth in terms of, you know, whether to sprint out or, or run it. I remember us talking about that. And um, I was, like I said, uh, I was I was good with anything. And I was just, like I said, you, sometimes um, you don't want to say too much because, like, like I said, they're the coaches, you let them go. I wasn't going to you know, take over and say, hey, we could do this or we could do that because I was confident either way. I thought we were going to score no matter what we did. I, I really, I believed that all season. And I guess when... 
you know, when you're a quarterback, you have to have that, that confidence with your team and show that. So when I went into the huddle and called it, we thought we were going to score. We thought, and I, I think I was hoping we would go. We're going to go for two, too. That's what I was thinking. Also, yeah. what we're going to do on the next play, because uh, that's that's when maybe I would have said, "Hey, let's go for it." Um, but uh, it was it was not meant to be. Well, you get the fourth down now, and you guys try a run again right up the gut. Bama stops you, but on the play, uh, Barry Krause. I don't know if you remember this or not, and I'm wondering if the players were aware of it. He's the one that puts the hit. And uh, he was temporarily knocked out, evidently. And for a moment, again, from what I've read, I'm trying to remember as well, uh, he had lost sensation in every part of his body. Were, oh. you, guys, were you guys aware of that at all? Or I, I that was, was not at all. No, I, I knew, you know, I have, I have the best seat in the house. <laughs> and um, I, I knew as soon as that, the, the contact was there that, that he was not through. And I just probably just walked off the field, not knowing what was even going on. And I, this is the first I've heard that the whole time. I haven't. Uh, it's it's uh, maybe it's just me, or maybe it's because of what happened. I'm dejected. But uh, like I said, I never watched film or read anything about the game. And, and you, you know, you know, you don't play as well as you, you hope to or can, and and uh, didn't rise to the occasion as I know I didn't on that game. It was always disheartening. So I I sort of just tried to move on after that. Chuck about. 30 seconds left, and I wanted to ask you, you told me that um, you were part of a documentary, you were interviewed on a documentary about the Philadelphia Stars. I can't recall the name of it, uh, but it's due to come out if they can get some proper funding, hopefully sometime the next year or so. Uh, was it fun to do it? Oh, yes. Um, one, of the, one of our teammates, Ken Dunnick, is, um, is, is putting this together, and... Um, it is. I think it's going to be really nice. I, I, I know they're, they're, how they interviewed, how they're doing, the people that are involved. I think it's going to be called the team the time forgot. And um, and they're also trying to put together Ken is and these, a movie on Sam Mills. Excellent. And, and that should be also within the next year or two, which is Sam, as I told you, to me was the epitome of the USFL. And a movie about him, as if no one knows, he did die of cancer when, when he was with the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, I remember. I and remember. just just a tremendous person tremendous player and i think that would be a movie that every family and every kid in america would want to see because if they could be like sam their kids or anything like him uh it would be totally worthwhile seeing excellent chuck thanks for coming on the show we've been talking to chuck fusina today for a penn state quarterback united states football philadelphia stars quarterback chuck thanks so much and uh, i hope to talk to you again soon at some point thanks john see you down the road bye-bye bye